welcome to the Second Generation Women podcast. I'm Van Anne, a second generation Vietnamese Australian on my journey away from being the busy primary school teacher into a slower, more present version of myself. This podcast is here to help you rediscover what it is you want and to begin letting go of cultural pressure from the outside world. Yes, you'll question your identity, your life decisions, and begin trusting yourself to fully live with intention and connection. I'm so excited to be your host and walk you through this journey. Let's get into the episode. Welcome back to another episode. Today, I've got someone special joining me, our first official guest on the show. Welcome to Whitney. Hi, thank you for having me. (laughs) It's great to have you here. Now, we went to high school together and since Mm -hmm. graduating over 10 years ago, I think, we hadn't reconnected until now. Yeah. I can't believe it's been 10 years, eh? Yeah. (laughs) 10 years. God. (laughs) Over 10 years. (laughs) So before we dive into the deeper topics, what's your background and what language or languages Mm -hmm. do you speak? Um, Yeah, so uh, my background is Chinese, Vietnamese. Um, Hardly speak either. (laughs) So English (laughs) is the main language we speak at home. Um, I can speak a little bit of Dejo and Cantonese. Dejo is like a smaller dialect in China. Um, yeah, like can hold a very, very simple conversation, but that's it. So yeah, (laughs) not very good. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Like my language has also... Yeah. Yeah. Once we speak well, once English, my mum started getting better at English and started working, it wasn't really a language we spoke at home anymore. So Yeah, I yeah. think I met her once and her mm. English is pretty good. Yeah, so no, she it's quite good. She says it's terrible, but she's actually very good. She's just being humble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're Vietnamese and Chinese as well. Yes. That's I'm also Vietnamese and Chinese, but more on the Mm, Vietnamese side. Yeah. It's interesting how that kind of came about. And I know, like, I'm not a specialist in that area and in the history of the countries and all that, but there are a lot of people who are both. Like, one parent from either country or Mm -hmm. parents were born Mm -hmm. in Vietnam and moved to China or vice versa. My mom is more so... I think just completely Chinese and they immigrated to Cambodia during the war and everything. Um, From my understanding, my dad's side is Vietnamese, but they do have Chinese roots and a lot of my aunties and uncles and even my dad could speak, you know, Chinese to a certain degree. So I would say I'm more Chinese than I am Vietnamese, Mm. I think. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? You've got to do one of those. The 23 and me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know Raymond did that? I got it for him for his birthday and it wasn't yeah. a shock at all. It was 99.9% Southeast Asian. That's the thing. And I think with a lot of those tests, they are very Eurocentric. So there's not a lot of nuances that can be found for like East Asian, Southeast Asian side. So I've always wanted to do one of those tests, but felt that they're not quite there for, you know, people like us mm. to, you know, spend that money just yet. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like a cool thing. It does, yeah. I think they might have better data by so, now. Yeah. Surely, surely by now, right? <laughs> so now that we've talked about your background, mm. let's go into your life a bit yeah. more. So tell our listeners, and I guess I'm curious as well, about some of those pivotal moments in your life and the cultural pressure that you experienced. Yeah, so I think growing up, it's always 
been about, you know, respecting your elders and, you know, I've had parents who've been through the war and the biggest thing that I remember growing up was studying hard, you know, studying hard, doing well at school. Mm -hmm. That was something that they didn't have the opportunity to be able to do. Um, you know, coming here, not being able to speak the language, that is obviously a barrier in itself. And, you know, being born here, you don't have that problem. So that was a big thing growing up and academics, you know, getting to uni, getting a good job. Um, that was big across the whole family, not just like me. It was like aunties, uncles, cousins. That was like the same thing we had growing up. Um, so, yeah, I would say that was like the main cultural expectations that we mm-hmm. had I would and say that was the majority of our life right honestly yeah <laughs> like going yeah and uni. it was you know making sure you got the best grades you were in the top class or whatever and you know tutoring on top of that um, I don't know if you did that but I definitely yep. did <laughs> I probably um, didn't do it as much or for as many years as a lot of people yeah did in yeah our school. yeah Like, just giving a bit of context, from my other episodes, we went to school in, like, a Mm -hmm. mainly Asian-dominant community. And so, academics was a huge focus. Yes. And tutoring. A lot of people went tutoring. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. There was no – sports wasn't a big thing. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it was very rare. I remember, like, a handful of people at our school who, you know, parents focus on the um, sporting side. But, yeah, it was always, like, academics, like, being good at maths, English, science, whatever, you know. (laughs) How did you feel at the beginning, you know, like, how in year seven? Mm. I feel like we were in the, like, the top class. The top class. (laughs) In the beginning of high school, we started at the top class. Mm. And how did you respond to that? How did your parents feel about that? Well, it was an achievement, you know, it was like something to be proud of. And I was proud of myself and being able to do that. And I think I didn't know any better as well. So it was mm. just like, I this is what I'm focused on yeah. doing. This is my goal. I'm going to try and achieve it. Um, and that was it. So I don't think the pressures of all of that really changed or my mindset around that changed probably not until I was at uni, I would say. Because I had a bit more free reign by then and it's like, oh, you've already gone to uni. So, like, that's the hard part done. You know what I mean? Um, And there's not as much scrutiny because it's very – it's a lot of it's, like, very self – a lot of it's, like, self-learning. Yeah. So, yeah, during those early high school years, it was just – it was like, oh, my gosh, I got into this top class. Like, this is fantastic, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if my parents knew about that, but – I was definitely proud of that. Yeah, yeah. It was like an achievement, you know. I'm just wondering, with your brother, I know you're the eldest, right? Yes, yeah. So with him, did he face those same pressures for, you know, (sighs) studies and... Yeah, I would say so. I couldn't personally comment on his thoughts of all of that and, you know, having a sister who was, you know, achieving because I'm sure there were... He might have had personal feelings about it or whatever. Um, but there was definitely a bit of that on him as well, for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell. Like these are these are things that we don't normally talk about. No. It's like, kind of like we all know about it. Yes. It's there, yeah. but it's the norm. We don't need to talk about it. Exactly. Like it's just saying – 
a mutual understanding. I mean, I it's something I do want to talk to him about because, you know, I tried to be conscious in the fact that I didn't want him to feel like any lesser because he had strengths and weaknesses and I have my own strengths and weaknesses and there was things he was good at that I wasn't and vice versa. So I hope, you know, I did a good job of that, you know, being conscious and not making him personally feel some kind of way, but, you know, who knows. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned about in uni and you released some of those pressures that you put on yourself. Yes. Like how did that come about? What kind of pressure did you feel and how did you let go of them? Yeah, I I think it was a lot of – it was just burnout Um, because if you remember, I did my year 12 English HSC in year 11. Mm. So we did a year early, so I already was prepping in year 10. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, no. Yeah, year 10, then did in year 11 and then did the rest of my subjects in year 12. You know, I always looked at that class and was like, wow, (laughs) you guys are up there, you know? (laughs) Honestly, like it wasn't that like big of a deal if you think about it because it was just doing it earlier. It's like – I can like looking back at it now I understand why but being away from it for so many years it wasn't really that big of a deal like all you did was do one subject a year earlier mm. like it 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 you know we were still learning the same things but at the same um, time like as a person who wasn't a part of that I was like these people are mentally ready now to do it <laughs> <laughs> like finish that course that people normally do at like 17 years yeah. old yeah yeah, no, that's fair. Um, I think it was it was definitely burnout. Like I had focused so much time and energy on making sure that I did well in that one subject because there was no excuse not to. Like that was the only one you were preparing for, for versus like five other subjects as well. And then having gone through the HSC in a sense, like gotten a taste of it and then having to do that again full on in year 12 was just – a lot. Yeah. And I was very much overstudying by the time uni had come around. And I also, the realization that there are a lot of other people who are way smarter than you are, you know, when for the longest you felt like you were, you know, the top of your grade in your school. Mm. And that's a very small and insular world. And then going outside and realizing, okay, yes, I am, you know, smart, but there are a lot of people who are way smarter than me in different areas. And it was just, it felt like, why, why did I, what, what was I competing against Mm. now? You know what I mean? We weren't competing for number one, number two, number three, of, yeah. you know, whatever. But it felt like that though. It was. It, re- it really did feel like that. And at uni, that wasn't there anymore. So it was just like, why? And I think it was very overstudying at that point. And, you know, this, this phrase that went around was P's get degrees, which is true. Like you don't have to have a HD or a distinction yeah. to get your degree. As long as you're doing, you know, relatively okay, you will have a degree at the end of the day. Not that I completely slacked off, but I think – that same drive and motivation definitely wasn't there when I went to university. Mm. Yeah. So you said um, overstudying. Yeah. <laughs> Twice. Yes. Were you like overstudying? Like you didn't want to study anymore? Or did you mean you were studying a lot? Yeah, I think I was just sick of studying a lot and having that pressure. And once that pressure was gone, um, because again, that ranking system wasn't really there you know my mom was pretty much 
very relaxed by that point. You know, oh, like you've gotten to uni, you're doing fine. That's the whole point, right? Yeah, exactly. Or you're schooling to get into uni. Yeah. Once you're in there, it's like do whatever whatever you want. want. Um, (laughs) So I, I think it was just being graded and judged. Maybe that's not the right word, but critiqued in that sense. I was very much over it. And yeah, that the that drive, that same intrinsic feeling that you had when you were younger to get that wasn't the same anymore. So yeah, I would say that's why I was over studying at that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. Like I I mean, it's hard for you because like for English, that is not your strongest suit because you didn't grow up speaking like purely English. Yeah. 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 Because I remember when I was in year I think I did advanced English in year 11. Yes. Yep. And then in year 12, I dropped down to standard. And the reason for that was because I was kind of questioning because English was not my strong suit. And also I asked my teachers mm. and they were saying that, yeah, if you were to compare yourself to people outside of mm. the school whose first language mm. is English, it's – it's going to bring your marks down. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so ever since then, I was kind of like, yeah, English is not that not that easy for me. <laughs> I can speak it. I can read. Yeah, I can yeah. Write, like the, the basics. Like my vocab, it. my ability to analyze things wasn't as strong as, mm. you know, other people. Yeah. No, that's fair. I It was funny though. I was um, good at maths when I was younger like early high school years and not as great in English. And then it shifted in my senior years, like all of a sudden, like maths, I was struggling to understand. And it took me a lot longer than other people to like wrap my head around it. Like I had to do a formula or whatever, like several times over to understand. Mm. And then English became a lot easier for me because it wasn't very black and white and I could argue, I could analyze whatever. And yeah, it was a funny like shift in my brain. It hasn't gone back ever since. My brain is not (laughs) mathematically wired. Um, But yeah, I thought that was like really interesting, um, that change. Who knows what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Did your parents ever praise one over the other Uh, or all of it was important to them? All of of it was important. I think the only thing that wasn't really important would have been, you know, um, sports. (laughs) 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 Yeah, and then eventually science when it was very clear that that was not where I was inclined or where my interest lied. It was, yeah, that eventually like fell off as well, yeah. Did you go tutoring for like – all of your subjects? Um, so I started primary school years. It was like math and English. And that was consistent up until the end. And, yeah, I had tutoring for English. I had tutoring for maths in my year 12, HSC. Mm. And because I did music as well. Um, so I played the piano. I went back to my old music tutor um, to help as well. So, not every subject, but for them it was like math and English was like the main one and then music because I already had somebody that I, you know, had taught me for many years when I was younger. Yeah. yeah. Is that like a – I know a lot of um, Asian kids yeah. would play musical instruments. Of course, yeah. <laughs> was that an expectation for you to play or be musically inclined in some way? 
Yeah, it was more that um, early days. I remember going to Chinese school. I hardly oh, remember those, yes. those days, <laughs> you know, Karamata somewhere, and then doing music. And I think it was like clear that I wasn't enjoying doing both. And I have a very vague memory of like my kindergarten teacher you know, talking to me about which I preferred, and I said I preferred music. Um, and that was a thing that I kept going until, oh gosh, probably like early high school. But when you're preparing for exams and all of that stuff, that there's a lot of hours dedicated to that. So that eventually dropped off. I tried to pick it up again, but it was too hard to balance. Um, but I always enjoyed music to a certain degree. Um, I can still play, not very well, but I can still read music. Um, but it was my mum's attempt to like inject some music into the family and maybe, you know, our kids' kids would like be musically inclined. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good way to entertain guests, isn't it? It is true. Not that, oh, do they ever like, you know, make us play for fun? Maybe, maybe. Might maybe when you were younger. Yeah, now it's yeah. like we just sit and chat. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think our backgrounds in like schooling were quite similar in the way we had grown up and the expectations placed on us. How did that translate into work? Yeah, I think it was very much the same in terms of like wanting to achieve, wanting to do well, wanting to be the best. So let our listeners know what industry you went into. Yeah, so I um, work in human resources and I've been in many, many different industries. It's just kind of happened that way. So I started off in digital media slash advertising, went to retail, did some time in transport slash technology, professional services, and now I'm, you know, doing something completely different in government, Mm. still in HR. Um, But yeah, I remember being upset if I had made a mistake and my financial director in the early days was like, you know, um, it is okay to make a mistake. You're such a high achiever. Like it's fine. And I didn't really take on what he said at the time or really understand it. He's like, you know, he's like, I can tell you were very much like a high achiever at school and that's you know not that he said in these ways but what he was saying was like it has bled over into your working life and your expectations and it wasn't like I massively screwed up and cost the business lots of money it was never like that but But I would felt like that yes it felt like the end of the world and I had disappointed everybody and myself and what would people think and I would be so upset and he was like it is fine it is not the end of the world it is okay and I I didn't I couldn't understand what he was saying and I'm like no I'm not like that like what are you on about and you know now that I've had time and you know done some inward you know looking into myself it's terrible English but anyway um I I can understand where he was coming from now and and can see that a lot better Mm. yeah (laughs) it's always looking back because you don't see everything clearly until you're like wait all these things happen for a reason yeah and you're so personally invested Mm -hmm. that you can't step away and have a clearer head yeah space about it And when you're in the moment, you don't see it because you're emotionally invested too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
everything someone's saying could be the most reasonable thing, most rational thing, and you're like, no, <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so was that one of the biggest moments that when looking back you're like, oh, okay, that's why these things happened? No, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that was the biggest moment. I think it was one of the many little moments that led up to that. So um another thing that had happened in another job was I was like sick on and off for a couple of months. It was like different things and I needed antibiotics um off and on for six months and that has had, you know, longer term implications on my health now. There was that um, I would say the biggest, the catalyst for me that kind of forced me to sit down and, you know, be with myself and figure out what was happening was when I had panic attacks. Yeah. Um, last year. Yeah. It was definitely last year. Um, where I was heading to work on a train, you know, we live out in the Western suburbs. You live on a train half your life if you, you know, trying to get anywhere. And I had moved out of home. So my commute was much shorter. Didn't have to wake up as early, which was great. And I remember being on a train and having heart palpitations. I was Mm -hmm. getting very warm and it was like winter, a lot of people on a train. So I was thinking, oh, like I'm just feeling very stuffy. I could feel my hands get tingly and numb. And I remember looking at the floor thinking, I'm going to pass out. Like I'm going to hit this like stone cold, just like gone. And I am not inclined to like fainting or anything. Um, And I thought, okay, look, I'm really close to work. I'm just going to waited out two three more stops like it's fine and I remember just feeling this massive sense of joy I was like I can't do this so I got off and it was only until I physically left the station that I started to feel better and that happened another two more times COVID happened after so there was no need to go back into the office but that was when I really like I was like something's not right for me to feel this way on a train which I have spent you know like I said half my life on um I need, I need to do something about it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So how did you handle that in the moment? Because like being on a train, you can't get off unless you're at the stop and there are people all around you. Yeah, no, I was very lucky because I was at Redfern Station and the door was open and we were kind of just sitting there and it was a gradual buildup of like three, four, five stops and when the door had opened, I'm like, okay, like maybe I'll just stay. And... I was like, no, I, I, I like, I have to get out. Like something is not right. I have to get out. And I remember sitting on the platform and I felt like I had ran a marathon. Like I was very out of breath and walked up the stairs. Even though I was out of breath, I still could like physically walk up two flights of stairs. And it was only until I was outside that my heart rate started to, you know, slow down, ease a little bit. Um, it was the only thing I knew in that moment to do was just like to get out of here because I'm I'm feeling some type of way. And that happened. That was the same two more times. Second time I was going to see a friend. So I kind of just sucked it up, which is a terrible thing to do. And then the third time I was going to work and I managed to get to work, but I felt like I was going to throw up by the time I got to the office. So I was just like, I I don't I don't feel good at all so yeah yeah 
going back to the idea of like sucking it up, get over yeah. it, you know. <laughs> I know. Like, because you feel like sometimes when you're going through something hard, especially when you don't know it's a big problem, like it's just something small in the moment and you're like, okay, yeah, I just deal with it. Get on with it. It's just this little thing. We have that tendency to kind of push ourselves to to make it to work, to, you know, just do this little thing, just go into work and we'll spend a few hours there. It's okay. And then we don't realize that it's part it of a becomes, bigger problem until yeah, it absolutely. happens a few times. Yeah, yeah. No, it's – if I look back at it, like besides the um, get-together with my friend, like I shouldn't have kept going into the city. I should have gone off. I should have gotten out and gone home. I eventually did go home that day, and I, I but I did some work first before going home, which again, like I wasn't in the mental space or had the capacity to do that, but I felt that I had to do that. And again, not that anyone said that. Like my boss was, when I told her I needed to go home and what had happened, she was very empathetic and understanding, but I felt that I had to do that, that there was an expectation. Someone was saying it and that someone was the, something in my brain. It wasn't somebody, you know, externally. So, yeah. Yeah. So when was when was it after that when you started to do something about it? Yeah, I want to say probably a couple of weeks after the third one because I was in denial for a little while and I had spoken to a friend who had been to therapy for, you know, different reasons. And he was like, you should definitely go. I know somebody who's really good. Uh, what was important for me was someone who had come from a background very similar to us and could understand the pressures and what it's like growing up and everything. And um, and I knew I didn't want to take drugs or medicine. Like I, I was like, that is plan Z, you know, like because it wasn't impacting any other areas of my life except being on a train. So I was like, surely there are other solutions before getting there. So, yeah, I went to see – a psychologist and I'd been to like counseling sessions before EAP and have I think they're great for surface things and being able to talk to somebody but something a bit more deeper they're not and when I was talking to psychologists, I was a bit annoyed when he had said this but I understand where it was coming from he was like oh you know you've been to different counselors and everything you know you're doing the same thing and nothing's improving I'm like, well, that's all I knew, you know, and that's the only service I knew that was available. I didn't think it was any, I didn't think it was that bad to pursue someone who was more of a professional, you know, and the the EAP services were very much like, oh, well, you know, she's happy, she's better now, she's not crying, like she's free to go. And that's like the limit of what they can do. So I was a bit annoyed when he had said that, but I get where he was coming from. Like you were doing the same thing and nothing is changing. But I didn't realize that I had anxiety because that turned out to be the issue. I didn't realize I had anxiety and that the way I was thinking was not generally typical for most people um, and that it was even a problem that I had to deal with. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of like the first realization of what was happening. Um because what he has said is like you have high functioning anxiety. So it manifests itself in a way where you're like high achieving, you're very motivated, like you get up and go about your day and do things while some people it's so crippling that they can't, you know, get out of bed. They can't, like that mm -hmm. was never a problem I had. 
Yeah. Not a choice. (laughs) (laughs) Not a choice, yes. Uh, Or an option, should I say. Um, Yeah, so that was the, the start of doing a lot of work to sort myself out. Well, I'm so glad that you have done something about it mm. and that it's helping you now. Oh, yeah. I, the person I was a year ago, a year and a half ago, is definitely not the same person I am today, which is pretty crazy <laughs> to think about. That's what we do as humans. We grow and evolve. Mm. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, but that sounds like you're in a much better place now. Yeah. Tell us what you're doing now. Yeah, so I had um, – at the time when we had, like, reconnected, I had actually quit my job, <laughs> which isn't something I would never have done in a million years. Um, but I was just getting to the point where I was like, I don't have to put up with this or feel with this or suck it up, you know. So I had quit. Um, I have and still have um, my side business of dried flowers called Mason Flower Bar, which is really amazing. And I love it because I get to channel that creative side of me, which I didn't ever really knew I had or had never had the opportunity to explore. Um, I did some shifts at a florist for a friend, um, ran some workshops and everything. I've, you know, have since obtained another full-time job, but I am definitely in a better space in terms of like this place now, I'm hoping has much better work-life balance. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I've got this side business that I really enjoy doing and there's no pressures, I guess, from me or anyone for it to be, you know, wildly successful or whatever. Like it is what I want it to be at the end of the day. And I think that's really nice. It is. And you have beautiful flowers. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And going back to the idea of Mm. quitting work. Yeah. Because that is a huge step. Like considering your background and Mm -hmm. being similar to me, that you built up this life where everything led to work, where you want to have a good career, good pay, a good salary and everything. And for you to just throw it out the window. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what, like you made it seem so easy, but what led to that? As in what kind of things did you have to do and overcome to leave? So it was definitely something that um, my psychologist had planted the seed around end of last year because he could see how upset I was at work and how much I was crying and how emotional I was about it. And, you know, that's not okay and that's not normal. But And he had encouraged me at the time and I was like, no, I can't. It's the end of the year, you know no one's hiring right now because like I work in HR so I know I was like no one's hiring right now I'm gonna be unemployed for how god knows how long until like February when jobs potentially pick up again um you know Christmas and everything I was living out of home I was like I can't afford that I can't afford this I honestly could have if I really wanted to but I, I was just like mm, no because everybody fear, would be right yeah fear of not yeah. having a job and it was like and also I felt like everybody would be disappointed with me if I had done that mm-hmm. you know um, that's the expectations from other people yes I know and it got to a point where I had so come back from the new year felt a lot more refreshed and it was great but I realized nothing was really changing and the only thing I could do to change it was to make a choice 
and I had actually had a small panic attack at home. And like I had said, it had never, ever happened anywhere else except for a train. But for it to happen at home in a space where it's supposed to be safe and all of that was not okay. And I didn't realize it at the time until I spoke to like my cousin and she had mentioned it. And she just casually was like, why don't you like quit? And... And you're like, nope, I can't. Well, I I didn't actually. I was just like, that is a really good point. And I thought, and this was a decision I made over the weekend, by the way. Um, So the incident happened Friday and then Saturday, Sunday, I'd come to the decision. And I thought about it. I was like, yeah, I've gone from job to job to job to job, never being able to get a break in between because one, I never thought to ask. Two, didn't want to ask in case they said no or fear of rejection or whatever. And three, felt like I had to do right by my employer by staying up until the very end. And if I think about it, there were some places when I finished up, they didn't need me that last week. I was just sitting there doing nothing. Um, And I thought, you know what? Like, fuck it. (laughs) And told my family, most people were on board. My mom freaked out for a little bit, understandable. Um, but come Monday when I told my boss, I felt very certain in the decision. The next day after though, I did freak out a little bit. I was like, oh my goodness, what did I do? I just quit my job. I I have nothing lined up. Like I have no interviews lined up or anything. Um, uh, I have no plan. I'm going to pursue like floristry for a bit, which is going to pay me peanuts for a while. Like what am I thinking? Mm-hmm. But after that kind of freak out. I was, I had no regrets in making that decision. I really didn't. Yeah. And it was nice to just do nothing for once and just sit down, wake up whenever I felt like it, do whatever when I felt like it. It was great. I was like, I'm not, I don't know if I've had ever experienced this in a long time or ever. So. And you went yeah. straight from school into uni, then work, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, pretty much. There was no break. I didn't take a gap year. Couldn't really afford to travel during, you know, uni days. Only did that when I started working. And it was nice to make a decision for me, for my mental health at the end of the day. And yeah, I don't regret it at all. <laughs> I wish it was longer. <laughs> Just quit your next job. It's fine. I've only been here for a little while. Bye. (laughs) Mm. So that's a nice place to ask um, this final question. How will you continue to live with intention and connection? Yeah, I think really, you know, thinking about what my needs are at the end of the day and what is important to me and keeping that at the top of my mind I think for the longest, you know, I was doing things to meet expectations, please people to do what I thought was right. And that obviously served me well in different parts of my life, but in others, not so much. And I've gone into a space now where I'm getting a bit more comfortable with saying no or pushing back at people in my, you know, personal relationships, in my working relationships and not feeling so guilty about it. Obviously they will, it's early days, so a bit of that guilt will still linger, but 
I always think back like, what are my needs? And is this serving me at the end of the day? And if it isn't, like, I don't have to suck it up. I don't have to put up with it. You know, I have a choice to remove myself from that situation and go somewhere else, be somewhere else. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Those are great questions to help guide you. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> so where can our listeners find you? Mm, so you can find me at um, Mason Flower Bar on Instagram. So M-A-I-S-O-N Flower Bar, one word. Mm-hmm. Website is very much the same. Um, yeah, you'll I'll see leave those links my... in the show notes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you'll see all my creations on there and everything. Um, but yeah, that'll be the main place to find me. Well, thank you so much, Whitney. No, thank you. I'd love it if you could take a moment to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. So go into your Apple Podcasts app, find the Second Generation Women podcast and leave a review. And to show my appreciation, I'll send you a free self-reflection scoring tool when you leave a review and send the screenshot to my Instagram DMs. I'll chat to you in the next episode. 